you have a Bible, um, you can turn to the book of Proverbs. It's right after the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, right in the middle of the Bible. Um, if you don't have one with you, uh, please we, uh, use a, a Bible that we have in the aisle uh, for you. Um, and if you don't own a copy of the Bible, then please take that one with you. We would love to talk with you about anything you would read there. So this is, uh, this is our last week in Proverbs, believe it or not. We, uh, we've been walking through what's referred to as the wisdom literature of the Bible. And Proverbs is one of the most famous examples of that. The theme of Proverbs is that living wisely gets you the good life. Do these things, and for the most part, things will turn out well. Well, next week, we start into the mysterious book of Job. And Job was a man who, as it's written in his book, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job lived wisely, but things did not turn out well. Join us as we continue in our series to see what we can learn about wisdom from God's word about Job. So back to Proverbs. We have already sailed the rough seas of dealing with our words and our friendships, sex, work, our money, discontent, some tough stuff. Now we arrive back into the calm waters of the harbor to the zen-like tranquility of, you guessed it, the home. We've gotten all those difficult, contentious, unagreeable landmines from Proverbs out of the way. We just need to take care of a few simple things, like honoring your parents and their teaching, finding a spouse, being a good spouse, raising children, spanking or not spanking, things that are so straightforward, it's a wonder the Bible even mentions them. Nonsense, of course. The home is where it all starts. The trajectory of your life is largely determined by what happened in the four walls where you grew up and in the four walls you'll go home to today. We all know the home is important. We even watch shows that portray a home life so distorted from the ideal that it makes ours seem normal. Proverbs is no different. After all, it was written by a man to his son. An entire book of the canonized Holy Scriptures is dedicated to fatherly wisdom in the home. Our author has spent time beseeching his son, for example, to be wise in his diplomacy in chapter 23. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. To be prudent in business. Chapter 10. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but for whoever gathers little by little will increase it. To not be lazy. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. To be a discerning leader. Chapter 29. If a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. These are all important things for a 
an up-and-coming leader to learn. But as much time as he spent out, out there, um, out here in these, these, uh, these dealings in the world, even more does our author advise his son to watch his words, his relationships, to avoid the adulteress. He wants his son not only to avoid foolishness out in the world, but also inside the home. Something important must happen within the home, and God seems very concerned about it. In chapter 11, the author writes, whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will flourish. Chapter 14, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Chapter 15, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. We've talked about this before, but God is concerned because life and death hang in the balance. Remember, Proverbs' image of foolishness is portrayed by an adulteress. She calls out to the fool, and quote, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. In chapter 14, he writes, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He dies for lack of discipline. Conversely, wisdom is life-giving. Chapter 2. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Chapter 3. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Wisdom, as we've said many times, is knowledge applied. It's not just knowing right things. It's knowing the right thing to do. So what does it have to do with our home? Uh, well, you, might, you may identify more with the, the righteous house in our, in our text we just read, the one where wisdom lives, the restful, nourishing environment that is a refuge from life's demands. Or maybe you dread coming home. Maybe home is where all the trouble starts. Maybe it looks nice from the outside, but no one knows how bad it is on the inside. Sometimes you don't know either. I like the way one writer put it. He's a, it he was sort of elaborating on an image from Ephesians 2. And he writes, how would you describe the spiritual aroma of your home? When visitors arrive, before virtually anything is said or done, what is one of the first things they notice about your family? In many cases, it is the aroma. Do they feel as though a bad attitude crawled under your refrigerator and died? Do they think someone has been baking spiritual bread in the kitchen all afternoon? Perhaps one living in the home is not in the best position to answer this question. Aromas are the sorts of things one gets used to. 
The residents usually do not notice those things that immediately strike a visitor. Well, the Bible can help. The Bible is like a trip that takes you away for a day or two. And you come back to your home, you come back to your life with a clean nasal palate. You can smell everything anew. And for our home, it still has this kind of uh, smell I won't describe to you, but um, it's interesting. Every time I come, I came back from a trip last night, and I was like, oh, there's that smell. I never smell. Remember that we're uh, looking at Proverbs like a life simulator. So uh, a, would-be inter- uh, a would-be human, uh, someone that wants to be a human, uh, is training for being a human, enters into the cockpit and, and is presented with scenarios at which they try different inputs and um, watching how life behaves and training his or his, mi- his or her mind to react accordingly. So today we'll look at a simulation, and there are four stages to it. It's a life cycle that Proverbs traverses through the home. It starts as li- with uh, life as a child. What is the goal of childhood from the child's perspective? How does a child live wisely in the home? As an adult, loosening the cord to parental authority, looking for a spouse, making a new home. And as a spouse, attempting to make sense of this mysterious, as Paul put it in Ephesians, union. And finally, as a parent, looking at childhood from the other direction. What is the parent's role in helping the child live wisely? So we're, uh, to start us off, we'll, um, let's, let's stand together as we read. We're going to read from Proverbs 1 and from Psalm 127. Um, there's going to be a lot more scripture in other places, but this is a good uh, jumping off point. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching. And then just back a few pages to Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So living wisely in the home as a child... So within the first few verses of Proverbs, we know exactly what the goal is of the whole book. The author doesn't hold back. 
Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. If you're young, seek knowledge and wisdom. If you're wise already, keep going. God's goal, no matter uh, what our age is, is for us to get wisdom. He says that exactly in chapter 4. However, as a child, you don't yet have the machinery to be wise. There are steps to be taken. The first step is to fear the Lord. Notice how there are only two categories in this text, the wise and the foolish. There is no middle ground. So if you don't start off wise, as it would seem from our own experience and the entire biblical text, it must be that you start off foolish. So life is some kind of progression from from folly to fear to knowledge to wisdom. And if fearing God is the gateway to knowledge, how does a child learn it? It's great to know that they should fear the Lord, but how does one fear the Lord? We find out very quickly in in, uh, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Chapter 2, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Chapter 3, my son, do not forget my teaching. Chapter 4, hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive. A child's job is to hear. It's not just to have sound pass through their ears. Do not forget. Treasure my commandments. In chapter 7, he continues, Keep my commandments and live. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Elsewhere, he includes, Bind them around your neck, so you will find favor and good success. Hearing is a child's job. What is he supposed to hear? If the purpose of hearing is to get knowledge so that they can be wise, to have knowledge, to know something, is to study its attributes. I know my wife because I've done pretty intensive research the last 16 years of my life. I've taken in facts, like what she likes, doesn't like, what gives her joy and what causes her grief. But I've also applied those facts to my life. They've actually changed my behavior sometimes. I've bound them around my neck and written them on the tablet of my heart. I've been attentive and gained insight into what my wife's existence means in the world and how it affects me. A child will not know God unless they hear, and what they hear are facts about God. We've talked about some of these examples from Proverbs already. Chapter 30, God has ascended to heaven and come down. God has gathered the wind in his fists. God has wrapped up the waters in a garment. God has established the ends of the earth. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Your children hear that every week here. In the New Testament book of Romans, Paul uses a different word to refer to the fear of the Lord. He calls it faith. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on, your under, not on your own understanding, as our author in Proverbs also says, that's the language of faith. What should a child do this side of history? Hear the word of Christ. Make sense of God, 
these facts through the person of Jesus. They should hear facts about the gospel so it can change their knowledge. And the gospel is a rich source of facts. God, in order to finish what he promised to do when man first sinned, came to earth as one of his creatures so he could become death on their behalf. Those are facts of the gospel. A child who hears, is attentive to, gains insight into the human condition. And they can do it very young. Our children, um, way before the age that they are now, they're intrigued by facts. One of my sons, and I'll, I'll let you guess which one if you know us, uh, he loves to call Jesus God. He's really intrigued by the Trinity. He loves the fact that he knows that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and then the Word became flesh. I maybe understand it about this much. He understands it maybe about this much. But his knowledge... Uh, that knowledge is slowly turning into wisdom. And it starts with simply hearing it. Faith starts with hearing. Of course, hearing is not the end. Knowledge isn't even the end. Wisdom is the application of it. It's, actually, it's, it's all that doing something. Chapter 6, when you walk, they, my commandments, will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you are awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Wisdom shows you where to go. Wisdom is a comfort to you when you sleep. Wisdom is company during the day. It is a light that shows you where to step. It is the way to life. And Jesus is the culmination of the fear of the Lord. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Love of Jesus is the end of it. Children need to hear, and they need to hear about Jesus early and often. Life as an adult, wisdom in the home as an adult, living wisely as an adult. It's a bit nebulous when uh, adulthood begins exactly. I think some of us still feel surprised to wake up some days and be considered an adult, at least as defined by your insurance company, maybe. Proverbs doesn't really define adulthood either. It happens somewhere between when a person is utterly dependent on their parents and when they engage in social and commercial enterprise outside the home. This could be teenage years for some children. Some of us are still working on it. An adult doesn't stop hearing their parents' teaching. Though the assumption is that it has taken root and early forms of wisdom are actually starting to appear. There's actually no statute of limitations on the command to honor your parents found in Exodus. So it would be reasonable to assume that adulthood involves an increasing level of wise living. Self-study of God's attributes, self-awareness, self-correction. The kinds of things that a wise child learned how to do. Now, I realize that honoring your parents may be a bit challenging. We can't choose our parents. Maybe you wouldn't have chosen yours. What's interesting is that Proverbs doesn't really address the folly of parents. The author assumes his commandments are all awesome. Some of your parents were like this. 
They were an outstanding influence on your life. I know some of your parents, and they were. They taught you the fear of the Lord, and you have made them glad with your wisdom, a phrase repeated throughout Proverbs. Others of you, your parents gave you nothing to bind around your neck and write on the tablet of your heart. They fed you and took you to activities, and that's about it. Others of you, your parents gave you plenty of advice, but you've questioned how much wisdom is actually in it. And still others, your parents weren't present at all. Maybe you had a single mother who worked so much that you didn't see her. Proverbs is not exhaustive. It deals with fundamentals. It deals with the ideal. Uh, a pastor that I, I really like um, in Washington, he describes Proverbs as normally true. So the advice is accurate. Don't cheat people. Don't lose your temper. But it's also ultimately true. For example, when wisdom calls out, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. That may not be true for you in this exact instant. You may not feel that security. But ultimately, if you fear the Lord and trust that Jesus will stand for you when you die, it is eternally true. You will dwell secure and dread nothing forever. The point is that your parents are not you. They can't condemn you, nor can they save you. You have to assess your fear of the Lord where you sit right now, regardless of what happened yesterday or decades ago. Outside the home, Proverbs has much to say about adulthood. Choose well your words. Choose well the way you conduct business, as we've said. Choose well your friends, which all of those things we've preached on. Please go back and listen to those sermons. But what's left to do inside the home as an adult? Well, if we're bound by Proverbs, um, there's really only a handful of texts, and there's really only two categories of adults. Married and not married. We'll talk about what it has to say to married people in a moment. So um, if you're single, for the single person, Proverbs focuses on choosing well your spouse. Chapter 12. An excellent wife or a noble woman is the crown of her husband. Chapter 18. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is a good thing. The father wants his son to marry, to marry well, to have children, and carry on the family legacy. What kind of woman? Well, Proverbs 31 tells us. A woman who fears the Lord. A wise woman. In fact, the whole chapter is is an acrostic poem. So that's why if you read it, it's sort of a scattershot um, approach. Uh, It's a bulleted list of grand statements about the kind of woman that would be fit for a son. She rises while it is yet night and provides food. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruits of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Basically a picture of the women of Trinity Church. What I find interesting is an implication that one commentator pointed out. This passage is not only what a spouse might look like... uh, 
what a spouse might look for in a prospective husband or wife, for example, it says they do each other good and not harm all the days of their life. But also that they should aspire to be the kind of person that who's described would want to marry. Did you catch that? In other words, the last 30 chapters I wrote to you, my son, prepare you to be the kind of man this woman would want to be with. So be that kind of man. Do not forsake my teaching. Treasure up my commandments with you. They reach into every part of your life that truly matters. And the most important part is choosing your spouse. Okay, so that's Proverbs. How does that relate to us? I want to be married. I affirm the beauty and importance of marriage. But it feels too daunting to choose. And the steps I feel like I've taken aren't getting me anywhere. I don't want to marry anytime soon. I'm not ready. I'm getting my life together first. I don't want to bring someone into this uncertainty. The breadth of uh, the sermon doesn't really leave us enough time to say much, so let's uh, make a few observations. Number one, if you aren't married and want to be, the Bible confirms that desire. Don't feel needy because you want companionship. God created Eve before the fall because it was not good for him to be alone. Marriage, so we preached on friendships, right? Marriage is the most special of all friendships. Proverbs affirms the importance of friendship all over the place. Number two and three, I'm going to borrow from um, Tim and Kathy Keller. They have a really helpful book called The Meaning of Marriage. Um, if you're married or single, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a fantastic book. Um, so, number two, Christianity freed the world from the social bondage of marriage. There's no implicit mandate anymore, right? Um, used to be that if you weren't married, you couldn't have children, and you couldn't have security in old age. So even if you didn't want to be married, you would still be arranged to be married or, or uh, you know, otherwise forced to be married by, by social pressure. But Jesus changed that. Jesus is the ultimate security in our old age. Jesus is the ultimate comfort in our loneliness. The ultimate joy giver that beats any sex. The closest friend that knows us more intimately than any other human. Singleness is now a viable option. And Paul makes this claim in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. We don't have time to look at. Uh, number three, don't over-desire or under-desire marriage. If you over-desire it, you may be idolizing marriage as the only true way to fulfillment. And then you'll likely put a weight on your future spouse that they just can't handle. If you under-desire marriage, you may be idolizing your freedom and your ability to decide the own, your own course for your life. 
but I have control over my life, don't I? I think it's a perception. I can't tell you what a practical help my wife has been to me. Bending my will and compromising with her often yields much better decisions. It's very practical. I also fear the Lord better because of my wife. The Keller's book is the best resource I know of to help you if you're single. Um, I, again, I encourage you to read it. A really important point they make um, in a chapter specifically on singleness is, uh, is, is, is super relevant here. They write, Marriage should not be a strictly individual, unilateral decision. It is too important, and our personal perspective is too easily skewed. The community has many married people in it who would have much wisdom for single people to hear. Singles should get community input at every step of the way when seeking marriage. Please use your church. Our covenant states, we will live together in Christian love, exercising affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, encouraging each other to forsake sin and pursue holiness. There is scarcely a more important context to use that promise in to help each other marry well. Living wisely in the home as a spouse. So how do we live wisely in the home if we're already married? Well, first off, marriage is to be enjoyed. Chapter 5. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Enjoy your spouse. You are each other's. Marriage is the context for full emotional and physical exposure. Bounded sex is actually where you are most free. And if you didn't hear the sermon on that, I, I strongly recommend that you listen to it. Listen to it again. Chapter 29, Proverbs says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So we should enjoy marriage. We should have self-control. Who wants to live with a capricious, unpredictable grump? My wife can tell you what that's like if you're fortunate enough not to know. Chapter 18, life and death are in the power of the tongue. We should use our words carefully. They have the power to heal and the power to wound. Again, we preached on this as well. So we should enjoy marriage, and we should be enjoyable to be married to. Proverbs is all about wise living and how to treat others. A spouse is a person that one lives with, so it's unsurprising that much of the book applies to marriage as well. There are a few passages we haven't talked about uh, that specifically mention marriage, though, like chapter 31, uh, we've mentioned before. But there's a few others. Uh, chapter 19, a foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Chapter 21, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. The image here is that the conditions living outside on the roof, subject to the hot sun and harsh rain, are better than the storms inside caused by your spouse. 
It's also better, he says, to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. So some observations. Number one, remember that this advice is to a father's son. So we shouldn't feel like he's picking on women. Like they are uniquely argumentative and complaining. That's not the context uh, here, and it doesn't jive with anyone's experience. We are all hard to live with. I think that's why the author generalizes it a bit more in chapter 17. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Number two, quarrelsome means contentious. But I think fretful is a bit more helpful. To fret is to feel or express distress or irritation. That makes it a bit more reactive. I think a major implication here is that when you are not meeting the needs of your husband or wife over time, resentment grows. One of our duties is to be a relationship doctor for our spouse, regularly taking their temperature and testing what we can do to keep them healthy. If you notice a decline in your spouse's emotional state, first look at what you may be doing or not doing to contribute to it. Do you nag your spouse? Do you speak harshly? Do you complain all the time? Proverbs seems mostly concerned that living wisely in the home is keeping a peaceful home. Peace comes from telling each other gospel words and living in such a way with each other that doesn't make sense unless Jesus is alive. And finally, wisdom in the home as a parent. So our child has grown up, he's gotten married, or she, and has children of their own. And we're right back where we started. Circle of life. Chapter 22. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Chapter 5. Iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Chapter 29. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Summary, a child is born foolish, and it's their parents' job to attempt to change that. Folly is bound up in the heart. Iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast. If you want to know how strong this language is, in Psalm 139, God holds fast the psalmist who has descended to the depths and settled on the far side of the seas. God holds him fast with his right hand. And God does not do anything part of the way. Being held fast is the Bible's way of saying that it is permanently affixed, is forever bound. That is how our children start. They are held fast in the cords of sin. Our power is not sufficient to make our children wise. We do not control the outcome. Only the power of Jesus, the only power that is stronger than the cords of sin, can deliver our children from folly. A book I really like about raising boys has a great section in it that applies to to boys and girls equally. I have boys, so um, so that's why I read books like that. Um, We we prefer the term nurture over words such as mold, shape, or sculpt. Nurture means to give tender care and protection to a child. Concepts such as molding and shaping suggest that we actually have the ability to make children turn out the way that we want them to. 
And even if we could, would that be what's best for them? Discipline, while we often think about it being reactive and corrective, in practice it isn't always about punishment for an offense. We use the same term for other aspects of life, like having the discipline to exercise, being disciplined in your work. It can mean simply having a plan, being intentional. In our context, it means not leaving a child to their self. But children, being foolish, need to be corrected. Even a child bent towards uh, compliance, and we know children like that. You might have been that kind of child. Still going to make bad decisions. Still has folly bound up in their heart. Still will not choose Jesus if left to themselves. Correction should naturally be a part of discipline. So quickly, uh, and this is not enough time to devote to this topic, but Proverbs gives us two kinds of correction, the rod and the reproof. Reproof is, is a reproach, very simple It's a verbal expression of you did not do the right thing and hopefully a follow-up, here's what you should do. However, in typical Proverbs fashion, the rod is used to paint some pretty graphic mental images. Chapter 26, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Chapter 23, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Chapter 13, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And there are more. Rather than an episode of Game of Thrones, um, we should point out that it's Proverbs' typical literary style to use harsh language to illustrate the harsh reality of foolishness. The sluggard says that there's a lion in the street. The adulteress's home is filled with dead bodies. Her gentleman caller is like an ox headed for slaughter. When Jesus talks about lust in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, gouge out your right eye, cut off your right hand. It is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Life and death hang in the balance, and words will not be minced in the Bible when danger is near. And a child left to themselves is in danger. We can affirm the literal meaning of the rod for its intended corrective restorative purpose and leave the hyperbole to the literature. I'm assuming that you haven't actually gouged out an eye when you linger on an inappropriate thought about someone. I think we can afford to apply some needed nuance to physical correction. There are other physical corrections in life besides the rod. Separation from the family, like a timeout. Uh, withholding desirable thing, you know, food, uh, dessert, or something like that. Proverbs doesn't talk about those. 
The fact that Proverbs does mention the rod must mean that it has some kind of significance and appropriate use. Even though it doesn't give any prescription for how it's used and how often. It doesn't claim that every child everywhere must be corrected physically or for all offenses. And the fact that the New Testament does not mention it explicitly should give us pause. We should, also, we should always scrutinize our methods. As caregivers, we have to make all kinds of decisions, left and right, from every direction. We're capable of making mistakes at any moment. Like all of the Christian life, this one is no different. Our parenting is meant to be exercised in community. We weren't meant to parent in a vacuum. We should approach all of parenting with humility and hold up our methods to the call of biblical discipline. Chapter 29, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he won't depart from it. Are you modeling the gospel in such a way that clarifies Jesus' demands? Are your children moving toward an understanding of the gospel? Chapter 29, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Are you seeing your children, are you seeing in your children a movement towards greater security and peace? And in you a growing delight in them? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6. Hebrews 12, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Wisdom in parenting is testing our methods against the model in Scripture. Are your children growing in timeless attributes of maturity? Are they moving toward respecting others, speaking kindly, showing self-restraint? Back to modeling the gospel. Training comes from showing, from modeling. What do they hear when you pray? Do they regularly hear you repent? How will they learn how to repent? Do you ever lie to your kids? There's no excuse to lie to your children. I'm going to read you something. I think I, I, I love um, Corrie Ten Boom. She, she was a, a, Jewish, uh, a uh, Dutch Christian. Her family uh, gave refuge to Jews during World War II in, um, uh, right outside of Amsterdam, this little town called Harlem. And uh, my wife and I have actually visited her house and when she was young, she asked her father about sex. It's like, what is this sexing that, that I hear about? He said, it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. 
When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. But for now, you must trust me to carry it for you. If you can't tell your children something, just tell them that. You don't have to lie to them. I was reading about um, sailing recently. I'm fascinated by the fact that a boat can move in a direction that may be at odds with the wind. I still don't understand how it works, even though I read about it. Because of this, you often have to make a best effort at a direction and not necessarily head straight for the place that you want to go. You just start out in sort of the general direction and you keep correcting the course depending on the wind and eventually you'll get to where you're going, in theory. This is what wisdom is. Jesus is our destination. There isn't any point being in the boat if he's not where we're headed. Wisdom is just correcting the course. Whether we're a child, an adult, a spouse, or a parent, life is a sequence of applications of the knowledge of the resurrected Christ. Knowing Christ comes through hearing. Make sure he is heard in your home. Let's pray together. Father, how good you are to us. You discipline us because you love us. And though it is painful, though this earth is passing away, though death hangs like a cloud above us, God, your promises are true. You have shown us the future. You've given us a way of escape. And God, we just, play, we just pray while we live on this earth that you would give us the wisdom to apply that knowledge to every aspect of our lives. And that we would pass it on to each other, to our children, to each other's children. God, we can only do that because you have changed us. You have given us hearts of flesh. We pray that those hearts would love you. In Jesus' name, amen.